Welcome to Season 1, Episode 3 of the M121 Podcast. I'm Josh Coker, and M121 is brought to you by He Shall Save Media. In this episode, we finish up our conversation with Pastor Michael Goins on the topic of theology. I think you'll enjoy our lightning round and our quick definitions of some big words. If you like the M121 Podcast, I ask that you go to our Facebook page, our Instagram page, our Twitter page, like and follow us, subscribe on YouTube. And share the content with others so that others can see and enjoy what we're doing. You can visit us at heshallsave.com for more information. I hope you'll enjoy this second half of my conversation with Pastor Michael Goins on the topic of theology. C.S. Lewis once said, if you do not listen to theology... That will not mean that you have no ideas about God. It will mean that you have a lot of wrong ideas about God. So where would I start in terms of learning theology? I would start by understanding the outline, the system of biblical theology. That is, let's start with the study of the attributes of God, the nature or the technical, if I could use a technical term, the ontology of God. What is God like? And the Bible has a number of things to teach us about the character of God. And then we move from that to the study of the nature of man and man as he was created in God's image. And then man as he is now after the fall. And then the fall, of course, reveals the need for the doctrine or the theology of salvation. So we start to study what the Bible has to say about the great doctrine of how sinners are saved. And then that leads to the doctrine of the church, what it means to live as followers of Christ and believers in God and Jesus Christ in this world. And then finally, the doctrine of future things, eschatology, which is the doctrine of last things or prophecies concerning what is to come, both in this world and at the end of the world, in the eternal state. So all of this, this this basic outline, this grid, will help a person to approach their personal Bible study in a more systematic way. Speaking of last things and, and sound bites, um, I, had the, I had the great idea to end this with some sound bites. Um, I wanted to just go through a quick overview of some theological terms. You know, I think that can be scary to some people, including myself. When you, you know, you read, you mentioned articles of faith earlier, and certainly those are important things to have. But when you read about a God who is omnipotent and omnipresent and uh, immutable, and, and in today's society, we don't, so many people don't know what any of that means. They really don't. Right. And so I would, if you're up for it, I've, I've got a list of terms to, to run through. And if you can give us a minute, uh, two minutes on each or, or, or less, um, I thought it would be fun to end this, this session today by running through some of those things with the nature of God, the nature of man and salvation, and just kind of a high level sure. overview of what they mean. Or a lightning round, sort of like a lightning round, right? Yeah, I feel like I need some Jeopardy music behind it or something, you know. <laughs> uh, 
as 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 I learn how to do this, and as we have more podcasts, maybe we'll get more sophisticated in the future. But let's let's do that. Let's start with the nature of God. Theology is is ultimately the study of God. You'll hear this word in, in Christianity, the Trinity. What what does that mean? The Bible teaches the Trinitarian nature of God in the very first chapter. Let us make man in our own image. And so historic Christianity is fundamentally Trinitarian. That is, we believe that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit within the unity of one God. And in order to protect that doctrine, the early Christians came up with a formula to define the Trinity. And it it doesn't explain the doctrine so that no mystery remains, but it safeguards the mystery so that God is not misrepresented by those who speak in his name. And that formula is that the Trinity speaks of the nature of God in terms of the fact that God, that there is a distinction of persons within the Godhead and yet a unity of essence. And the idea, of course, is that God the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, but yet God the Father is completely God, the Son is completely God, and the Holy Spirit is completely God, so that there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one as 1 John 5, verse 7 teaches. And that is not the only verse in the Bible to teach the doctrine of the Trinity. For in Scripture, we find that we are to baptize believers in the name of the Father. Notice the word name is singular in Matthew 28, 19. The name that speaks of the unity of God in the name of the Father and of the Son. Now, the conjunction and distinguishes the persons of the Godhead. So in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, you'll also find intra-Trinitarian conversations in Scripture. Jesus says in John 14, I will pray the Father, and he shall send the Holy Spirit, another comforter. The Lord said unto my Lord... Psalm 110, verse 1. So there is substantial biblical evidence to teach the Trinitarian nature of God. And this is not tritheism. We don't worship three gods, but we worship one God in three distinct persons. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. I don't even think that was fair to start the lightning round with the Trinity. Um, <laughs> Paul said, great is the mystery of godliness. And that it is, is a mystery. It is a mystery. The Trinity is a mystery. And I feel like the more I try to explain it, the more I just say it is what it is. And, you know, I've had, I've got kids, I've got an eight year old and a five year old and, um, you know, they have questions and the Trinity, the Trinity is, there's no doubt that he is a Trinitarian. He's a tri-personal God, if you will. Uh, But trying to explain that, I feel like I'm in quicksand. You get, you just get deeper and deeper. Uh, So, but the, and, the, and that's exactly right, and that's why we don't explain it so that no mystery remains, but we safeguard the mystery by using that formula. And the reason the doctrine of the Trinity is so important is because 
if God is not tripersonal, then how can Christians claim that Jesus is God? For the New Testament affirms the deity or the divine nature of Jesus Christ, not that he's a sub-God or that he's, he's God-like. He's not a man with God tendencies, but he is God of very God. So the doctrine of the Trinity is crucial to the deity of Christ, and it's also crucial to the doctrine of salvation, for there is a Trinitarian formula in the Pauline epistles in the New Testament in which God the Father chose a people, God the Son redeems that people, God the Holy Spirit calls, quickens, and regenerates that people so that salvation is the product of an economic Godhead, that is, God working in unison, and there is never any disconnect or discord in the work of the Holy Trinity. These three are one. All right, what about sovereign? We hear a lot about the God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. What does it mean to, that God is sovereign? The sovereignty of God speaks of the absolute authority and supremacy of God. Arthur W. Pink said to say that God is sovereign is simply to say that God is God. And when we speak of sovereignty, we're thinking of God as the king. The sovereign, of course, is a king. He has ultimate, or here's a 50-cent word, plenipotentiary authority. That is, he has absolute power. A king, uh, the buck stops there. And when we say that God is sovereign, we're saying he is the king of the universe. He's the governor among the nations, as Psalm 22, 28 says. He is on the throne. He reigns supreme, almighty over all. The sovereignty of God is God's absolute right to do what he pleases, when he pleases, where he pleases, to whom he pleases, and no man has the right to question him or to say, what doest thou? Absolutely. And what a blessing that is, as we talk about the benefits of having a, a biblical theology. And we see discord in American politics today. And to ultimately understand that there is a king outside of this kingdom you know, that we call America. Amen. There is a king on the throne, and it is God. Amen. What about the Lord the, reigns. What about the immutability of God? Immutability is a word that probably we don't use in daily vernacular, but we do use the concept of mutation, the root of that word. And the word immutable uh, uses the rule of negation to uh, describe God by saying that God does not mutate or God does not change. He is immutable. And of course, there are a number of verses that teach the immutability of God. Malachi 3, 6, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And of course, James 1, 17, where he says that with God, there is no variableness, that is no variation neither shadow of turning. And the two metaphors or images used in that verse 
suggest that with the passage of time, like a sundial, the shadow turns on the sundial, as time passes by, God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is a great encouragement to believers that God doesn't change his mind. He doesn't change his truth. He doesn't change his love. He doesn't change in any respect. This attribute is crucial to the eternity of God. That is, if God is without beginning and without ending, then obviously he must exist in a state of immutability, or he cannot change, else he would not be eternal. My dad would always help me with my math homework, and I'm not a math major or a math guy. He was, and he would always say the reason he loved math is because English would change. History was rewritten, uh, but math was always just math. You could count on it. Um, <laughs> exactly. What a great point, and that's, you know, truth. That was before Common Core. The personification but... <laughs> of truth. Truth does not change. It doesn't alter. Over time, error is in a state of flux. But God, who is truth incarnate, truth personified, the embodiment of truth, he does not change. That means you can count on him. Omnipotence, what does that mean? The omnipotence of God, with, of course, the prefix omni, and a number of these incommunicable attributes of God, that is, these are virtues in the nature of God that he doesn't communicate to man. Uh, they are exclusive to him. Omnipotence speaks of God's uh, all power. Omni has to do with uh, something that is all-inclusive, you know, uh, a venue and a major city may be called the Omni. They may have concerts there. They may play basketball at that venue. They may have uh, a political convention in that facility. It's called the Omni because it uh, covers all of the bases. So God's omnipotence, his omnipotence, speaks of his all power. God is able to do anything that is within his nature to do. He has all power. He, the Lord God omnipotent, nothing is too hard for the Lord, is the meaning of omnipotence. Omnipresence. The omnipresence of God speaks of the truth that God is everywhere present simultaneously. The verse in Acts 17 at Mars Hill when Paul says that he is not far from every one of us is um, both surprising to people who've, who ha have tunnel vision and uh, can only see the circumstance in front of them, the circumstance in which they're living at the moment. It's, it would, must have been a surprising realization to the folks at Mars Hill to realize that God was near. Jeremiah 23, 23 says that, that he fills, F-I-double-L, he fills heaven and earth. So God is everywhere at the same time, nowhere absent, and that, again, is a very comforting truth to God's children. It's a very alarming truth to those 
who are disobedient to God. So like you said, with theology, we start with God, but we move to man. So let's talk about the, the nature of man for a moment. What what does it mean, you hear the Imago Dei, that he was created, man was created in the image of God? How would you explain that to someone? Well, of, of all the creatures that God made, only man was created in God's image and after God's likeness. And that means there is something about man that is God-like. And the question is then, in what sense is man, as God made him, like God in a way that animals are not like God, angels are not like God? And it's in this sense that man is, first and foremost, a rational being. He is able to think and to reason from cause to effect. In other words, unlike an animal, man does not live merely by instinct. He doesn't simply follow his nose and do whatever his passions tell him at the moment, but he is, he is a rational or thinking being, man the wise. Homo sapien is the idea that man is a thinking being, and that is evidence that he was created in the image of God. And furthermore, he is a social being. He has capacity for relationships through communication. He can communicate verbally and therefore form a relationship just like God. He is a social being and that man is a volitional being. He has a will, the capacity for action. He can make decisions and pursue the course that will lead to that decision becoming a reality. So he's a rational, a social, a volitional, and he is a moral being. He has a conscience. He knows right from wrong, and he's able to able to distinguish between right and wrong, and he has a conscience that operates as, as a, an arbiter of his uh, of the decisions that he makes. And then he's an immortal being, so he will live forever. There's something about him that will never die. So when the Bible says God was God made man in his own image, the Imago Dei, or the image of God in man, is stamped on the composition of human nature. And of course, that image was marred in the fall, but yet it still exists in the sense that man is still a thinking being. He's still a, a communicative, social, relational being. He's still able to make decisions, but all of that is now fallen. Yeah, perfect. So that, uh, perfect segue into... If, if you start a study of theology, to me, the thing that explains what we see on TV, what we see through human history, just the, the struggles that man has been through, the wicked things that man will do, uh, you can just go back to what we call the fall. Could you explain to us what is the fall that, that marred this image of God in man? That's right. In Genesis 3, God had given Adam and Eve access to every tree of the garden except one. Of course, the serpent took the occasion to insinuate from God, from the fact that God withheld one tree from Adam and Eve that God was not good. But if you think about the fact that God had given them access to every other tree, that's a testimony to the goodness of God. And he gave them this one boundary. He built a, a perimeter around this one tree, as it were, in terms of this verbal law 
that thou shalt not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as a test of man's obedience. So Adam had freedom. He is the only person in human history apart from Jesus Christ who had perfect free will. And he could choose either to obey God or disobey God. And Adam chose poorly. He chose to disobey God's command. And uh, he disobeyed the Lord and plunged himself and his entire posterity, the whole human family, again, with the exception of Jesus of Nazareth, who was virgin-born, and the second Adam, he plunged the rest of us into a state of depravity and alienation from God, so that the image of God in man, though it still exists, it's now marred. John Calvin, the theologian of the Protestant Reformation era, said that looking at man today is like looking at the ruins of a great castle. There's still a hint of his former grandeur, but everywhere it is in ruins. And, of course, there's still a hint that man is in God's image. He still has the ability to think, but his thinking now is defiled. His his will is fallen. His emotions now are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So man is in such a helpless state as a result of the fall that every faculty of his being is depraved. That's what we mean by the expression total depravity, that in every part of his composition, man is fallen and unable to recover himself by an act of his own heart or hand. And that's the plight of man by nature now. He is in this depraved, fallen, corrupt state, and he must be rescued from without if ever he's to see God's face in peace. Romans 5.12, wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Real quick, you're going to hear a lot, if you're new to Christianity, you're going to hear a lot about sin, right? I, there was a, there's an episode of Andy Griffith, my personal favorite show, where uh, Barney falls asleep during the sermon. And I think that the preacher's from New York or somewhere, it's a big preacher, and, and he falls asleep during the sermon. And as they introduce him, they're walking out of the church and they introduce, Andy introduces Barney to the, the preacher and, and he says something to this effect. Uh, now, by the way, you've quoted all kinds of theologians, and I'm quoting Barney Fife. I don't know what that says about the two of us. <laughs> well, I did quote Charlie Brown. That's so. true. That's true. But uh, okay. he, he looks right. at him and he says, he says, that's one thing you can't preach enough about, sin, sin, sin. <laughs> what, what, what is sin? Just real quick, what is sin? Well, sin's a picture word in the Bible, and... Uh... It, there are several different metaphors used to describe it. It's uh, it's defilement. Sin is compared to dirt or corruption. Defilement, like leprosy in the Bible, it is um, it is us straying from the target. The word hamartia in the Greek literally means to miss the mark, and the images of an arrow that is aimed at the bullseye, but it veers off course. And God has given us the target in his word of uh, how we are to behave. Sin is a, 
is a departure. It's a defilement. It's a disease. Uh, sin is described as leprosy again, and it corrupts the entirety of our souls, and our bodies are victims to it as well. Sin is ultimately the transgression of God's law. So it is an act of rebellion uh, against God. It is a trespass in which God has laid down a boundary, and we have stepped over the line. We have uh, departed from God, and sin is defined by the objective truths of God's law, his Ten Commandments. God is interested that we be holy and righteous, not only in our actions, but in our attitudes. That's why the Ten Commandments have to do both with our deeds and with our motives. The last one, of course, thou shalt not covet, speaks of the attitude or the motivation of the heart. So sin is a departure from the bullseye that God has given us. Let's move to a happier topic. Let's talk about salvation. You, you mentioned soteriology earlier, the study of salvation. What? Just real quick, if you're if you're new to a church, hopefully you're hearing a lot about salvation. What 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 is what what does that mean? You know, what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to that, that God brought salvation to His people? Salvation in Scripture is a picture word that speaks of being rescued from danger. And I think of a firefighter rushing into a burning building and coming out with a little child in his or her arms. And uh, he has rescued this individual from danger. Because of sin, we're in danger, in danger of the wrath of God. We have violated the law of God, and therefore we are at risk of banishment from the presence of God throughout eternity. Foreseeing that fact, God, God in his eternal purpose, constructed a scheme of salvation that is a plan to rescue a portion of Adam's fallen race of humanity through his acts of grace. So salvation is the umbrella concept that speaks of everything that God has done, whether in the planning stage or in the execution phase or in the application stage of this work to rescue a portion of fallen humanity from the consequences of their sins. You mentioned the planning phase. So let's go through that real quick. You, you said the planning phase, the execution phase, and the application phase. I like the way you put that. So in the in the planning phase, that would encompass things such as foreknowledge, election, predestination, correct? That's exactly right. It would, it would encompass the idea of the covenant of redemption. The Bible teaches us that there is such a thing as the everlasting covenant. And of course, there are many covenants or agreements talked about in the Bible. Each of these covenants that God made with men, whether the covenant with David or with Noah or with Abraham, with the children of Israel, or the new covenant of worship and service that the book of Hebrews talks about, each of these has to do with the revelation of 
some aspect of God's everlasting covenant. That's the great covenant that he made within the Godhead before the foundation of the world. So before time even began, God planned, or the Bible word is he purposed, to save a people. And he constructed a plan of salvation, which would ultimately end in the rescue of everyone that he intended to save. And foreknowledge speaks of his love before time began, before the fact. Foreknowledge, God entered into a covenant relationship with a people that he loved before time began by his own initiative. They didn't contribute to it. It was God's decision to do this. That's foreknowledge. And then election speaks of his choice of a people out of Adam's race, out of the human family, to be his own. And predestination suggests the idea that God determines the final destiny of that people that he chose and that he loved to be conformed to the image of his son. All of that was decreed by God in the covenant before time began. So that's the planning that's phase. Plan, that's the planning phase. That's right. Let's talk about the, and this, this is exciting. This is, this is great. The execution phase. Let's talk about the work of Christ. Uh, what does it mean that he was our atonement? He was our substitution. You know, you don't have to define all those words, but, but he is the propitiation for our sins. I believe that would be the wrath ending sacrifice. Talk about that execution phase of the covenant of redemption. Well, each of these theological terms, though they may be unfamiliar to us, they are Bible words, and therefore it's incumbent upon us to learn what they mean, and it's uh, honoring to God when we do. The word atonement simply means a covering, just as the blood that was applied to the doorposts and the lentils of the Hebrew homes in Egypt covered them from the wrath of God. So the Lord Jesus Christ's blood covers his elect, those that were chosen by the Father and given to him before time began. It covers them from the wrath of God. And you mentioned the word propitiation. There's another term similar to that. It's expiation. And in the work of Christ on the cross, he both propitiated God's wrath, and he expiated, that is, he removed man's sin. So to propitiate means to appease. So when Jesus died as our substitute on the cross, that is, in our stead, in the place of all that were given to him by the Father in the covenant, when Jesus paid the price for me and for you and for all of his elect on the cross, he both removed God's wrath, He's the propitiation for our sins, and he removed God's wrath by removing our sins, expiating our sins. And both of these terms fall under the category or the canopy of another theological word, which is reconciliation. So Christ reconciled us to God. That is, he made peace where enmity or antagonism, antipathy, prevailed, Jesus removed 
the impediment so that now we can have a relationship with God again. That's what he accomplished at the cross. That's the execution. So a second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21 for us, for he, for God hath made him Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He was executing that plan of salvation when he died for you on the cross. Let's talk about the application. So we've got the planning, the execution, and the application of salvation. But let's talk about the application of salvation. And again, we see the doctrine of the Trinity here. So God the Father chooses a people. God the Son redeems that people on the cross. And then the Holy Spirit applies what Christ did at the cross to the individual during that individual's lifetime. So between the moment of conception and the moment of death, at some point, God has pledged himself in covenant commitment to reach every one of those that he loved and that Christ redeemed with the gift of grace in their hearts. He applies what Christ did legally and positionally on the cross. He applies it to the individual in a vital and personal sense in the work of regeneration. And the word regeneration simply means new life. It means that you are resurrected, you are quickened, you are made alive. Where sin had debilitated an individual, where we were all dead to spiritual things, dead to God, because of our trespasses and our sins, the Holy Spirit comes and he resurrects the child of grace in the work of regeneration. He quickens, as Ephesians 2 verse 1 says, uh, he regenerates. You're born again. That's the individual or personal application so that there's something inside of you as an individual now after regeneration that is alive to God and that will live forever. And that's the great gift of God's grace in the work of regeneration. Let's talk about, and maybe we can end with this, and I don't know how this fits in. You can you can explain that to us, but if we talk about last things or eschatology, there's also that stage of, if you will, of salvation or that application of salvation, which is glorification, when we will be rendered excellent at the second coming of Jesus Christ. So, you know, if it's if it's glorification, resurrection, the second coming, just give us a, a one, two minute uh, three-minute overview of the the last time, the end times, the last things, the resurrection, eschatology. How would you explain that in a, in a soundbite lightning round? That's kind of impossible. <laughs> well, that's, I'm that's sorry, a, brother. That's impossible that to quite, do. That's, that's quite a steep hill to climb. But um, the um, so what God has done for His people in Christ and through the work of the Holy Spirit, He has promised to continue and to guarantee he has guaranteed so everyone that he has saved is preserved in jesus christ so that when jesus returns again which that is the brightest star on the christian horizon the promise of the second coming of jesus christ when he comes again The Bible teaches us that the resurrection will occur. So the body that has gone back to the dust from whence it came, it is decomposed and has been buried 
will be raised again, and it will be changed according to 1 Corinthians 15 and reunited with the disembodied soul and spirit, which is which went back to God at death, so that we will be given a new body to match our regenerate hearts and in soul, body, and spirit. God's elect will spend eternity with him at the end of human history. We will spend eternity with him. Redemptive history, in other words, will never end. Though this world concludes yet to we have this wonderful prospect, the blessed hope to which we look forward, and that is that Jesus will come again, and we will be with him and with the entire redeemed throng in the eternal state, which is a realm where dwelleth righteousness, not even uh, a hint of discontent or disharmony or sin or division or demonic activity will ever encroach on the joys and the bliss of that eternal state. That's what we have to look forward to. So we have this blessed hope before us, and Christians are called to live their lives right now in the light of the glory that is to come. And the bottom line is that Jesus will win in the end. That's the Amen. Narrative, that's the story of the narrative in the book of Revelation, that we will be conformed to the glorious image of Jesus Christ, never to part again in a world where all is peace and love. What a blessed hope we have. Yes, you stole my word, the blessed hope. And once again, as we talk about studying theology, theology is not something you study, the study of God. Uh, so that you can get on the internet and debate in forums. It's not something that you study so you can right. know more than your neighbor or something that you can know more than your friends. The study of God is something uh, that should, uh, the, the study of God is something that should motivate you. The study of God is something that should bring you great hope. You know, this has been a discouraging, uh, or 2020 has been a discouraging year for many people. Uh, but there is that blessed hope and the more we know about Christ and we realize that he's coming back uh, and we yearn for that that blessed hope of his glorious appearing where then there will be so think about in 2020 the division whether it's politically or among uh, racism or whatever the things that have been in the news all of that's going to be reconciled when he comes back we're, we're it's it's my philosophy it's my point of view that we're never going to experience harmony in this life I think you can do that. By studying the Bible, you'll learn that in this world we will have tribulation, we will have division, but in heaven one day we're going to experience that great unity when we're all around the throne out of every nation, every kindred, every tribe, every tongue, because we'll be united in our worship of him. That is that blessed hope. Um, now I'm fired Amen. up, Brother Mike. Well, that's uh, you're preaching. That's a, <laughs> I'm uh, glad to hear your sermon. That's very, very edifying. You know, theology Michael, is meant to encourage us. Absolutely. Theology is meant to encourage us and to give us that hope and to help us deal with the despair and the difficulty that we face right now. That's why it is important to study the nature of God and the revelation that he's given to us of all his wonderful works in Holy Scripture. My goal with this podcast is that you, you will be encouraged, that you will learn, uh, that your faith will be strengthened, that your mind will be 
stirred. I want to tell everybody, we mentioned it, but basic Bible doctrine, systematic theology for the person in the pew yeah, is, is a, one of my favorite books. Um, there, there are several that you've written that I've, I've, I've read multiple times, but this is the one that I always go back to. It's just a great overview of systematic theology. We mentioned it at the beginning of the show. You can go to sobgrace.net, S-O-V-G-R-A-C-E.net, and, and purchase a copy for yourself. Um, we, it's a great place to start if you're looking to expand uh, your knowledge of the Bible and, and, and study the Bible in a systematic, theological way. Brother Mike, I appreciate you for, for joining us today. Any closing thoughts that you have as we wrap up this episode? Oh, it's, it's been a delight to be with you, Brother Josh, and I certainly appreciate the opportunity to discuss my favorite topic. And I trust that some of our conversation today will be edifying and useful to those who listen. May God bless you. God bless you. Until next time, join us back here on the M121 podcast.